Well, I want to welcome you all on this Father's Day. Thanks for being with us. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the New Testament to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible to use, you should find one available to use in one of the chairs around you. And as many of you know, but just in case you don't, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, and it's a study of this ancient document called Acts that records how uh, the early church and the good news of God's love and grace went, as we'd say today, went viral, spreading quickly from the streets of Jerusalem uh, to the farthest reaches of the known world. Remember, Jesus said to his followers, he said, you know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's essentially what we see happening in the book. Uh, the church in Jerusalem grows from a handful of believers uh, to well over 15,000 uh, people, uh, a majority of whom eventually leave the city and head north into Samaria, where they embody the mission of Jesus by sharing the good news of God's love and grace uh, with people, by serving the spiritual and physical needs of people, and inviting into community those who are racially and culturally different. And as we saw in the text, a lot of Samaritans uh, come to faith in Christ. Last week, we saw God lead a guy in the church named Philip to an Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner in Israel, a sexually altered North African man, a religious and social outcast. And God had Philip go to him and explain to him about God's love for all people and how Jesus came and was sacrificed for our sins. And through faith in him, we are forgiven and the grace of God is poured out into each of us. And we are welcomed into God's family, every one of us, no matter who we are, where we're from, or what we look like. And that, that man, if you remember, he believed and he was baptized as a follower of Jesus and he goes his way rejoicing. And so by the end of chapter 8 of the text, the good news of Jesus had spread out to a lot of different pre people, breaking through uh, racial, cultural, and socioeconomic barriers. But keep in mind, that expansion began when the religious elite in Jerusalem killed a follower of Jesus named Stephen, initiating an outbreak uh, of violence against the church uh, that caused believers in Jerusalem to scatter. And at the center of that violence was a young Pharisee named Saul. Uh, in fact, when the temple leaders stoned Stephen, we were told in the text that Saul approved of their killing him. He was there. He watched it happen. Uh, not only that, afterwards, Saul basically organized and spearheaded the persecution of Christians throughout the city of Jerusalem. The text says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Well, now here in chapter 9, we get a chance to find out what happens to this persecutor of God's people. And it's a qu quite a remarkable story. Beginning in, in chapter 9, verse 1, we're told this. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which was a reference to the church, whether men or women, he might take them uh, as prisoners back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, for those of you who may not know, Saul was a Hellenist. In other words, he was a Jewish man who had been born outside the land of Israel in Tarsus, which was a, and is a city on the south coast of what is now modern Turkey. Uh, he was a Pharisee, a religious expert in Jewish law, a religious scholar, and uh, as we've already noted, a relentless persecutor of the early church. But he's also known later in life as the Apostle Paul. Paul being his Greek name. But for the sake of our study this morning, I'm going to refer to him as Saul throughout. And the text that we just read is historically known as Saul's conversion. But I got to tell you, I hesitated calling, uh, calling it that because in our culture today, the word conversion weirds people out. You know what I mean? It's a word that is very unpopular. It makes people uneasy. It makes them nervous. Uh, certainly the idea of religious conversion uh, to some sounds very archaic, uh, and uh, calling people to conversion for many seems narrow-minded, if not just plain wrong. There are even those within the Christian community who are uncomfortable with the word conversion. I ask myself, why is that? What does the word mean? And The word comes from the Latin term conversio, which simply means to turn around, to transform. And so if it makes, it makes it easier for us, we can call this Saul's transformation, where he turns from being a persecutor of the church to a follower of Jesus, from an unbeliever to a believer. And frankly, um, it's a transformation we all must go through to be a Christian, right? I mean, we all have to come to a, to a, to a, a point of life, a moment of, of, of conversion, if you will, a moment of transformation where we turn from unbelief to belief, Jesus once referred to this as, as new birth or rebirth or being reborn. And the New Testament is replete with conversion stories. Uh, some of them are dramatic. Some of them are more quiet. Some, some, some are sudden. Uh, some take place over time. I mean, they're all a little different. Uh, and just like my story of coming to faith in Christ is different from yours and most certainly different from Saul's. So when we look at a conversion experience in Scripture, we can't recipe it. Uh, you know, we can't make it the standard for everybody. It doesn't always happen the same way. And yet, Saul's spiritual transformation does include a few things that are common to every Christian's experience. What do I mean? Well, let me explain what I mean. First, first of all, Saul has an encounter with truth, right? I mean, he's on the road to Damascus. He's intending to wrap, uh, round up any of the Christians he finds there, bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners, as he gets near the city, suddenly he's knocked to the ground by this flash of light out of heaven. He hears this voice calling him by name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And how does he respond to that? He responds quite respectively because as a Pharisee, as a religious expert, Saul realized that any voice 
coming from heaven is going to be the voice of God. You know, so so he, he asked the question, who are you, Lord? Which is a fascinating question. Because here's a religious expert, an Old Testament scholar, who obviously thought he had a, an a- accurate understanding of who God is and what he's like. I mean, for, for Saul, I mean, understand, there was, there was absolutely no way, there was no way God would ever take on flesh and blood, come to earth, hang out with sinners. No way God would set aside temple sacrifice, be himself put to death and resurrected. No way God would view average, irreligious men and women the same way he, view, he would view good, moral, religiously zealous people like him. There's just no way. And because Saul thought he knew God, who he was, that, I mean, that's why he figured Jesus was wrong, the Christians were wrong, it's why he was per- persecuting them. But see, the God Saul thought he knew was in many respects more of his own making than anything else. It's like a lot of people today uh, who believe in God, over 90% of Americans do. And if you ask people to say, well, what is God like? Many will say, well, I believe, I believe God is a is God of love who accepts everybody no matter what, and if you're a good person, he's going to be good to you. God just really wants us all to be happy. In other words, for many people, the God they believe in is a God of their own construct, one who conveniently agrees pretty much with whatever they think is right. A God who's a, little bit, who's a little more than just a projection of themselves and their own, their own ideas. And so, and so he's a God who never contradicts them or says that they're wrong or tells them things they don't want to hear or you know, who's okay with whatever they want to do, no matter what, just as long as they're happy. But really, that's not much of a God. And certainly not one who can really help you. Right? I mean, it's like carrying a mannequin around with you, calling it your closest friend. It's kind of weird, you know, it, uh, it, never, it never argues with you, never, never talks back, never disagrees, never instructs you on what to do or offers you, offer you, offers you wisdom on how to live your life. Why? Because it's not a real person, you know, it's not a real being. And so it, it can't love you, it can't help you. Here's the point. It's only logical that a real God... A real creator, one who is infinite, is going to know more than us and is going to think different than us and have a greater understanding of what is good and right and best for us as finite human beings. He will no doubt surprise us at times, challenge us at times, inform us at times, maybe even infuriate us at times, show us things that we don't expect, tell us things we don't want to hear, act in ways we do not understand, reveal things about himself we may not necessarily like, confront us with the truth. So here's my question. Is the God you believe in real or just a projection of your own imagination and ideas? Because here's the thing. That God can't love you. He can't help you. He can't save you. See, Saul's, conver- his, Saul's encounter with Jesus came, it just came totally unexpected. And this was not the God of his religious thinking. It was like the truth, the truth came and found Saul. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Apparently the guys traveling with Saul heard this, but they didn't witness anything. And when Saul stood up, he opened his eyes, he was blind. And so they did as instructed. They take him into Damascus, and there for three days he remained blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. 
Now, why do you suppose uh, he was blinded? What was that all about? And why, why didn't he eat or drink anything for three days? And the text doesn't tell us. Uh, and so I can't say for sure, but as I've been thinking about it, perhaps, perhaps this darkness that, that overcame Saul, perhaps it gave him the time and the opportunity he needed to contemplate the truth. I mean, don't you find it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, kneel to, before me, ask me into your heart as Lord and Savior, repeat this sinner's prayer, and you're good to go. doesn't say that. Instead, he plunges Saul into darkness without explanation for three days. And, uh, and so what was Saul able to do during that time? Not much. Uh, think. Not much else. Had few distractions. In fact, uh, I'm guessing the, the no eating or drinking a deal implies that he was fasting, he was praying, he was, he was processing, you know, the truth of Jesus with which he was confronted. In fact, later in his writings in the New Testament, in his letter to the Romans and letter to the Philippians, Saul offers some insight about what he was contemplating during this time. And um, there are two basic things, really. First, he was rethinking his whole understanding of God. This, this just shattered, kind of shattered him, you know, as an Old Testament scholar, suddenly his mind is just racing back throughout the scriptures and, and all of a sudden seeing things in a new light. Again, as a Pharisee, Saul rejected the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Messiah was anointed by God, favored by God. Jesus, he wasn't anointed, he was nailed to a cross. He was cursed by God. How could he be the Savior, the Messiah? The idea was ridiculous to him. But then he meets Jesus on the road and realizes that clearly Jesus was favored by God. He was vindicated. He was raised to life. The resurrection was true. So could it be, could it be that on the cross, Jesus was cursed for someone else's sins? Otherwise, there would be no vindication. Could it be that he died for us? I'm guessing Saul's mind reviewed the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The first part of the book is all about the Messiah, the strong king. The last part of the book, about the suffering servant who dies to save others. How could those two be the same? Suddenly the light bulb goes on. Jesus. What about the whole sacrificial system? Centuries of spilling the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. How can dead animals atone for our sin? Unless, unless they point to something, unless they point to someone, Jesus. And what about the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel who talked about a, a new covenant and through them God proclaimed a day that would come when he would directly place his spirit within his people. How could that be possible? Jesus. Even Abraham, right, received the promise of God that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed, favored. How? Jesus. Now understand, as a Pharisee, Saul, he, he, he had a certain view of redemption and how it worked, the way it was going to go down. For him, uh, the idea was you have a strong God, sends a strong Messiah to save anyone strong enough and good enough to obey him. But now he's rethinking. Now he's wondering, but what if, what if it's not exactly that way? What if a strong God uh, sends a strong but suffering Messiah 
to die for our sins and rescue anyone strong enough to admit weakness. What if that's how it works? What if redemption is not about our efforts at self-righteousness, but it's about God's grace? And suddenly, with that possibility now in play, Saul started rethinking his own understanding of himself. Again, as a Pharisee, uh, his whole life, man, his whole, his whole career, his whole identity was built on keeping the Mosaic Law. It was all about, you know, it was all about his attempts at goodness, his own self-righteousness, his religious achievements. But now, by meeting Christ, the risen Christ on the road, all of, all of that stuff, all that religious stuff, all that performance, all of that begins to unravel for him. And in his humble state of mind, Saul begins to realize, ironically, in his blindness, he begins to see that he could not possibly save himself, that he needed God's grace. He needed a Savior. He needed this Jesus. And look, here in the western suburbs of Chicago, most people aren't building their lives and identities on keeping the Mosaic law, right? That's just not going on. However, many people are building their lives and identities on personal achievements. You know, people say, well, you know, I got into that school, graduated from over there, I landed this job, bought this house, look at me, I'm a successful, good, relatively moral person, I'm sure God's impressed, I don't really need a savior. But understand, if that's the way you think, then the most loving thing that God can do for you or to do for anyone who thinks that way is to let all of life somehow in some way unravel around you to where you begin to realize your own failures, your own weaknesses, your own inabilities, your own brokenness, your own neediness. There have been times in the past when I've talked to people about faith in Jesus and they'll say, well, you know, uh, I get it. If I become a Christian, then, then you're going to want me to stop living this way or that way or, or get all religious and get all moral. I mean, that's what I thought. But what I've come to realize is conversion, if you will, spiritual transformation uh, is not a call to moral structure. If it's anything, it's a challenge to self-righteous morality and prideful self-sufficiency. I mean, Saul came to a point where his thinking about God and thinking about himself changed. This one arrogant religious expert who put all of his hope in his own self-righteous works, he comes to a place where he recognizes his brokenness and his sinfulness. He recognizes that he can't do it on his own. And he comes to a place actually later on in life where he describes himself this way. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He went from having a pretty good opinion of himself, himself to recognizing his own sinfulness. See, on the road to Damascus and over the three days that followed, in humility, Saul realized he needed a Savior just like everybody else. And so he embraces the truth of Jesus. And this guy Ananias shows up at the house on Straight Street where he was staying and just so you know, it wasn't like this guy wanted to go and do this, right? He wasn't thrilled about this. When the Lord said to Ananias, go find Saul of Tarsus, what, what did he say? He was like, what? Uh, I know who this guy is. I've heard about this guy. You know, on all the stuff he's done to your church in Jerusalem, endorsing violence, imprisoning people. Now he's here in Damascus with a warrant to arrest 
followers of Jesus just like me. Now you want me to go be nice to this guy, accept this guy, put my hands on this guy? I mean, this guy who wants to put me in jail or worse, kill me? Is that, I don't, am I hearing this right, Lord? And, and, and the Lord's like, go. I've got, I've got big plans for this guy. He's going, to, he's going to be reborn. He's going to be converted. He's going to be turned around. He's going to be transformed. He's going to proclaim my name to the world, to Jews and Gentiles alike. And, you know, we don't know all that much about Ananias beyond this, but we do know he was a follower of Jesus, and therefore he understood the gospel. He understood the good news of God's grace offered to everyone, apparently even to persecutors. And so he goes to Saul reluctantly, uh, nervously, no doubt, and he finds him, and he places his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, for Saul, it must have been like God was touching him himself, you know. Like that God was saying, I love you, I forgive you, now believe. And at that very moment, we're told something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized as a follower of Jesus, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. However you want to describe it, I mean, however you want to describe it, Saul is turned around. He's reborn. He's converted. How do you know for sure? How do we know for sure? He experiences undeniable transformation. Listen, and I've talked about this before, but I think we in the church get mixed up on this sometimes. Biblical Christianity is not just about what you know. It's not just about how much theological information you can cram into your cranial cavity. It's not, it's not just rational. It's experiential. You see, it's both and. You know, faith, genuine belief, well, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. I don't know who they are, but they say that, you know. <laughs> I have no idea who they are, but they say the proof is in the pudding. And clearly, you know, for Saul, there are some immediate changes that take place in his life that were undeniable. And I, I don't have the time to elaborate on these, but let me just mention them quickly. First, his relationship to God changes. As a religious person, he always believed in God, but suddenly now, after encountering, encountering Jesus, he experiences this new intimacy with God. A deeper understanding of God's love and grace leads to it. You know, when, when uh, the Lord says to Ananias, go to Saul from Tarsus, find Saul from Tarsus, for he is praying. I'm wondering if Ananias was like, well, big deal. He's praying. He's, a, you know, he's paid to pray. He's a Pharisee. You know, they do it all the time. It's what they do. They, they take pride in the whole prayer thing. In fact, one time Jesus said, you know, the religious leaders do. They, they think they're going to be heard because they pray with all these elaborate words and many words and these long prayers. But see, it's one thing to try and interact with God as if doing a cold business transaction. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, God, you, if you do this, I'll do that. Or, uh, dear God, I'll give you that much, but you owe me this much. You know, it's, that's bartering. That's a bartering relationship, which is not the same as praying to God, our Father, who unconditionally loves us as sons and daughters. And that's why Jesus said to his followers, when you pray, you don't need big, long, elaborate prayers. You don't need a lot of fancy, impressive words. He says, start out this way, our Father in heaven. So you see, for the first time, uh, Saul, 
he, he isn't just bartering with God. He's not, he's not just repeating rote incantation. He's praying in the truest sense of the word. He's, he's, he's connecting with God on a new level. And it's like God was, God was like, look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. He's praying. And I gave him a vision. We're interacting. This is awesome. We're actually interacting on a deep, intimate level. Go to this guy. Go to this guy. And so Saul's relationship to God changes. And his relationship to the church changes. Because suddenly... The people he was aggressively pursuing and relentlessly persecuting become like family. Ananias comes, he puts his hands on him, and he calls him Brother Saul. And Saul gets up, he's baptized, and he's welcomed into the community with these, these fellow believers in Jesus. He eats with them, he drinks with them, they shelter him, they protect him. In fact, as this story continues to unfold in chapter 9, and you can read it later on your own, but we're told Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, uh, and get this, immediately we're told he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's my Ray K summary. Saul doesn't just become part of the believing community. He gets actively engaged in the mission of the church, bringing the good news of Jesus to the people of their city. And he intentionally goes into the synagogues because he was familiar with them, and they were familiar with him. And the, the Jewish people there knew who he was. I mean, his, his reputation preceded him. But all of a sudden, here he was proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, as the Savior. And everyone was like, hold on a second, what is happening here? We, isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name Jesus? Hasn't Saul come here to take them prisoners back to Jerusalem to the chief priests? What, what's happened to this guy? Well, he was reborn. He was... He was converted. He was transformed. In fact, the text says Saul grew more and more powerful in the sense that he was, he was influencing. He was a bright guy. He knew the scriptures. And, and it says he baffled the, the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How did he prove it? I'm guessing some of that was by way of showing from the Old Testament that Jesus completely fulfilled the scriptures, that he was the strong Messiah, Savior, and King and the suffering servant who gave himself for us. And the good news was and is about God's grace, not about our futile attempts at self-righteousness. So he proves it through his teaching, but even more so, he proves it through his life. This dude was changed. And he didn't, Saul didn't just sit around the church soaking in the grace of God, basking in the community, doing nothing. He went out and engaged and engaged with the mission of the church. And as a result, his relationship to suffering and personal sacrifice changed, right? I mean, the Lord, Lord told Ananias, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that's essentially what happens. I mean, Saul, Saul engages with the mission of the church, starts teaching about Jesus, and his life gets, gets threatened right off, right off the bat. Because of his faith, the pursuer becomes the pursued, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. He who inflicted suffering now suffers. And we're told that after many days, there was a conspiracy among the Jews in Damascus to kill him. But Saul learned of the plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him when he came by. But his friends and followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Not the most, not the most glamorous way to start a ministry career. You know what I'm saying? Being lowered out a window under the cover of darkness and then running for your life. Not what you would expect. But that's what happens with Saul. That's how his life with Jesus begins. That tells me a lot. Here's the deal. Beware. 
most of us don't get called to be apostles. Um, however, being a Christian means you're willing to sacrifice and suffer for naming the name of Jesus. Why? Because like Saul, you understand that Jesus suffered and sacrificed himself for you. When you didn't deserve it, he put you first. He put you first. And as a Christian, that reality should be the inspiring, motivating principle of your life. And if you're not becoming a more unselfish, giving person, willing to sacrifice and even suffer to some degree for Jesus, then I don't know how else to put it, but you may not be converted. When writing on this whole idea of life change and personal sacrifice and putting, putting ourselves second, God first, uh, Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He wrote, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body. And in the end, submit with with every fiber of your being, and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look to yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him everything else thrown in. So here's the thing. Conversion. That may be a very unpopular word, uncomfortable for a lot of people, and it is, but here's the deal. Saul was converted. He was. His life was turned around, radically turned around. And although most people's experience coming to faith doesn't involve lights from heaven and voices from heaven and blindness for three days, becoming a Christian does, will, and must include an encounter with the truth of Jesus and contemplation of that truth and embracing of that truth and then an experience of transformation and a willingness to suffer and, and sacrifice for Christ's sake. Demonstration of genuine, uh, genuine uh, faith and belief. I mean, that's the way it happened for Saul. That's the way it happens for everyone. The question is, has it happened for you? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed at your timing. Um, and I think of what we're learning from this book, this record of history. And I think of last week seeing your love and grace in Jesus extended to a foreigner in, in, in Israel, an African, a man who was sexually altered, who was an outcast, religiously, socially. And you, you specifically reached out to him. And Philip told him about your love and your grace in Jesus, and he embraced the truth. He heard it. He encountered it, he contemplated, he embraced it, and his life was changed. And today we hear of a persecutor of the church, um, a very religious individual 
who had a pretty high opinion of his own self-righteousness. And you loved him enough to bring the news of Jesus to him. And he too um, encountered the truth, contemplated it, embraced it, and his life was changed. And Lord, although the, the surrounding circumstances were different, Paul was, Saul was Jewish, a Hellenist. The, the other man we talked about last week was from Ethiopia. He was an African man. And although their backgrounds were different and their experiences were different, they were both broken and in need of, of your love and your grace, your forgiveness, as we all are. And um, I, pray this, I pray this morning you would give us the courage individually to decide what it is we believe. Because many of us in here have heard the truth before. We've heard it this morning. Truth of your love and grace in Jesus who sacrificed himself for our sins, who offers us forgiveness and life everlasting. We've heard the truth. Maybe we even have thought about it a lot. But the question is, have we embraced it? Have we embraced Jesus? And if we have, or if we say we have, then the question becomes, has, has this truth, has our faith impacted the way we live, the way we think, what we do, our willingness to sacrifice, our willingness to serve, our willingness to suffer even for the one who suffered for us? Because, Lord, we know that your grace changes us from the inside out. It, it brings about transformation. And if we're just spinning our wheels in churches around our nation, if we're just talking about these things, if it's not true for us, if, if we have not experienced that change that your grace brings, then, then our culture is in trouble. And it's easy for us as, as churches to sit back, as Christians to sit back and look at the events that unfolded this week and say, what a shame, what a rotten culture, what a messed up culture and do nothing else. The reality is that the change that happens to us as Christians should inspire us forward and we should lead the change. We should lead our culture in confession about such evil and racist um, behavior and the evil of it and confess it before you for the hate, for all the violence and we should be the leaders in bringing about reconciliation between people who are different. And we should be the leaders in extending forgiveness and talking peace and welcoming others who are different into our community. We should be leading. We should be leading the way. But that starts with one, one person at a time. And so Lord, I pray in these moments that we would as individuals first have the courage to decide what it is that we believe and do we believe? Have we embraced Jesus? And if so, how is it changing us? How are we sacrificing? How, how might we be suffering for him? Without it, our world is in trouble. Without him, the world is in trouble. And so we come before you as broken men and women this morning. And we tell you we love you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?
You know, there's a line in that song that says, if you wait till you're good enough, basically it says that, that you may not ever come. And that's kind of where Saul was. You know, he had a pretty good opinion of himself as a religious person, but suddenly he realized that religion isn't the answer for, for him or for anyone. Uh, the answer rests in the grace and mercy of God expressed most fully in Jesus, uh, who came and lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserve to die to offer us life and forgiveness. That's the truth. Think about it if you need to. But some of you have been thinking for a while, maybe it's time for you to embrace it. And when you do it, it's going to change you. It's going to change you from the inside out. And when the church, when the church is truly the church, when we understand this, when we experience it, the impact it has on us doesn't just impact us, it impacts the communities around us and the people around us. And man, oh man, our world needs, our world needs some help. And uh, the church is God's plan A. For them. There is no plan B. And so our hope as a church is that as God changes us from the inside out, we'll impact our culture, our community, um, sacrifice, maybe even suffer for the one who suffered for us. If you have more questions about what it means to be a Christian, you know, come down, why don't you come down front following the service. Some of our prayer team folks will be here. They'll be glad to talk with you. But uh, thanks for coming. I hope you have a great day. Uh, next week, we're going to continue in the series. Hopefully, you're finding it helpful. Um, next week, the, gra- you know, the grace of God has been pushed out to the Samaritans, then to a, an Ethiopian eunuch, now to a persecutor of the church. Next week, it goes to a military guy, a really good military guy. And uh, we're going to look at his experience. So I hope you can come back with us. In the meantime, a happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoy time with family and friends. Um, my Father's Day is a little weird this, this year. I got My kids are on both coasts, so uh, we're just alone this week, uh, this year. But that's cool because usually when we, at Father's Day we get to go out for din- lunch or dinner, I end up paying anyway, so it's all good. I don't exactly know how that works out. Maybe that's not how it works with you, but if, you know, any, whatever the case is, have a great time with family and friends. Let me pray for you and then we're dismissed. Now, Lord, I pray that your hand of grace and peace rest on our children, our parents, our friends, our life groups, all of your people here. And may our greatest desire this week be to love others who are different and to bring the news of your grace and goodness in Jesus to our city, to our community. And if we need to sacrifice and suffer, so be it. But our world needs, our world needs you. So give us the strength and the power to make a difference this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. Have a great Father's Day.